Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Andy Murphy. Friends, family, and the citizens of the Navajo Nation laid Peterson Zaw to rest over the weekend. Those speaking at the event praised the former Navajo Nation president for his bold leadership starting in the 1980s that continues to add to his ongoing legacy. His vision and his commitment to education, economic sovereignty, and steady guidance were especially welcome after a time of turmoil for the nation. Today we take time out to honor Peterson Zaw and to assess the reach of his far-sighted governance. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Authorities say they're investigating an attack on an indigenous community that left five dead and at least three wounded in Nicaragua. The incident is the latest in a series of ongoing attacks on indigenous communities in the north and east of that Central American country as settlers and mining and timber interests want to move into indigenous lands. Maria Martin reports. This latest attack took place in the indigenous community of Wilu in the Bosawas Nature Preserve in northern Nicaragua. Local native authorities report all of the houses in the Wilu community have been burned and families have been left without shelter, food and clothing. Indigenous forest rangers who guard the protected area say the bloody attack was carried out by some 70 armed non-Indigenous settlers. The attackers are believed to be mostly former soldiers, also responsible for previous acts of violence against Mayangan and Misquito communities in Nicaragua as they seek land for ranching, farming, mining, and the timber industry. The government of Daniel Ortega has been criticized for not taking stronger action on the perpetrators. The government denies that accusation, pointing to the arrest in January of 24 settlers involved in a previous attack on a Nicaraguan indigenous community. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. The Kowalungan tribe in Alaska's Aleutian Islands is calling on locals to help with a climate vulnerability report. Sophia Stewart-Rossi has more. As Unalaska Island tries to adapt to the changing climate, the Kowalungan tribe is looking for residents with knowledge of the berry seasons, bird populations, and more. The tribe is working on an assessment of Unalaska's climate vulnerability. Resilience Coordinator Shayla Shishnikov says participants, who will be called community knowledge holders, do not need formal scientific training to serve on the assessment committee. We are the ones who know this land. We are the ones who know our oceans. And so you guys know better than any scientist based out of Anchorage or Homer about what's going on here on the ground. Participants will be paid to provide information on topics, including when seabirds show up, how long berry picking season lasts, and other environmental issues that may demand planning and adaptation. Shishnikov says the guidance will equip local decision makers to better identify threats and challenges driven by climate change. Six committee members will meet quarterly throughout 2023. Shishnikov says meetings will focus on the concept of gustilic. Gustilic is the Unanga form of visiting. And essentially what that entails is when you get together with your friends, your family, colleagues, anybody, you sit down over coffee or tea, maybe some fish dip or snacks, and really just create a space for where there's trust and where we're going to have an organic conversation of knowledge sharing and really just sitting in a safe, comfortable space. For National Native News, 
I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi in Unalaska. A professor is conducting a survey to learn more about the millions of American Indian and Alaska Native people living in urban areas. The survey asks if they live in an apartment or a house, conditions and experiences finding housing. Sophia Locklear is a professor at Western University in Canada, and she's from the Lumbee tribe in North Carolina. She launched the survey two months ago and has received nearly 800 responses. That signals that like people want to talk about about this. You know, I'm getting emails, people saying, I really want to tell you my story about trying to find housing. Her goal is to use data to inform policy and allocate funds to American Indian and Alaska Native people. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. People from across Navajo Nation and the globe honored former Navajo President Peterson Zaw over the weekend. Zaw walked on last week at the age of 35, and world leaders and ordinary citizens alike remembered him as a thoughtful, bold leader whose contributions continue to live on. His granddaughter, Crystalyn Curley, said her grandfather will be remembered as someone who spread hope throughout the whole Navajo Nation. Curley is the Navajo Nation Council speaker and the first female speaker. President Biden and his wife, Jill Biden, sent a message saying, Zah never, never lost sight of his purpose to stand up for the dignity and respect of the Navajo people. We'll get a few more perspectives today on Peterson the person and the inspirational leader. You can join our conversation too. Just dial 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Now joining us from Flagstaff, Arizona is Robert Joe. He is the managing partner with Tower House Group and a partner with Tribal Carbon. He is Diné. Welcome to Native America Calling, Robert. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so what was your relationship like with Peterson Zah? Well, growing up, I knew who he was. He was my uncle. And I know about his political career, but I never really worked with him one-on-one -on -one until 11 years ago. Somehow we ended up getting together and started working on the various uh, projects that he had an interest in and that I was working on. 
And so that was, that's been our relationship. And um, I've been driving them around, picking them up, going places, traveling all over the country, meeting so many people, so many tribes, and so many different type of companies uh, in the past 11 years. Yeah. What, what kind of person was he? Humble. Very humble. Very loving. I would say unconditional love um, because he, it didn't matter who the person was. Um, he always treated them with respect. And um, even if they were an opposing party, he still treated people with respect. Mm -hmm. And what would you like people to remember about him? Oh, it, he's just touched so many minds and so many hearts in his lifetime. And everything that he's worked on, um, all the Supreme Court cases that he was involved with, that they won, that just transform Indian country, not just Navajo, but Indian country, from education to taxation, uh, you name it, uh, the Indian education and Self-Determination Act that, that closed down all the boarding schools at the time and to allow for uh, schools to be built closer to indigenous communities. Uh, that's one. Uh, uh, filing a case in the state of Arizona for taxation of uh, Native employees that were li living on tribal lands that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's just so many things that he's touched and so many people that he's worked with. Um, he was a blessed man that uh, Im influenced a lot of bright minds and uh, I think what he's accomplished and what he stood for is going to echo in eternity. Right, right. And um, a, a memorial, a funeral was held for him over the weekend. And uh, some of the reports say that uh, the procession to Winderock, where it was held, was miles and miles long. Um, you know, everybody showed up to, uh, you know, say goodbye to him. It was it was a really big event with lots of Navajo leaders who were also um, influenced by him and consider him uh, his their mentor. Um, so, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with him, where did uh, his drive come from? What, what did uh, it, when did it reveal himself, itself, I mean? I think at a very young age, his, his parents, his grandparents, he made a lot of reference to them in our conversations while we were traveling, um, just how he was raised, uh, the principles, the beliefs that were instilled in him and what path he was taking as, at an early young age. And um, that, that kind of shaped and framed who he became in, as, a, as a grown man and an adult. Yeah, and you mentioned, um, you know, working in education. Uh, he actually went to boarding school, right? He was born on the Navajo Nation and then uh, went to boarding school way over in Phoenix and, um, uh, you know, was one of the uh, first and, and few at the time to uh, get a degree from a, a college there. I think it was Arizona State University. Um, you know, can you, can you, you know, now looking at leaders today, can you trace his influence through other Navajo leaders? You know, um, he initially, there were no schools on tribal lands on Navajo. 
and they had boarding schools. And the one he initially went to was in Tuba City. Later on, as he got older, uh, he went to Phoenix Indian School. And from there, he went to Phoenix Community College, where he met um, Governor Lewis, Stephen Lewis's father, Rodney Lewis. And they were on the Phoenix Community College basketball team. But at an early young age, he was being groomed and developed as a nine-year-old to learn our culture and tradition. And there's a sacred 10-day ceremony, probably one of the most complex that you could learn, that, that, that he was being groomed and developed to learn. And uh, uh, so that's, that was kind of his path. Um, but I know that from what he shared that um, there was a huge discussion about him going to school or taking the traditional path and becoming a traditional healer with this 10-day ceremony. And he knew all the stories, all the sacred stories he knew. And uh, I was really surprised that he did because uh, before I'd never really seen him uh, talking about much about it, but he had made reference to it. But now, uh, now I understand. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, what influence did he have on you? I mean, did you think about how he interacted with others and, and how does that make a, a, a difference to you? Hello? Yeah, yeah, are, are you there? Yes, I'm back. I... Okay. Uh, wh- uh, what what influence did he have on you? Oh, <laughs> um, just the way he conducted himself. Mm. I um, <clears throat> He would always ask me about my background and my career and how I did certain things in the corporate world. I worked for Fortune 100 companies. For 22 years, I was an executive with them before coming back and starting start to working with uh, Native communities across the country. And that's when we, we got together. And uh, <clears throat> my approach was always direct. Let's just move on and get things done. And, uh, but his approach was different. It was, wait, let's listen. Let's listen to understand what these people really need. And then... Uh, after we understand, then we can communicate what we think, how we could help and assist. And uh, he was just very respectful, very humble, uh, very caring. And nothing was about money with him. It was always about the people first. What is in the best interest of the people first? Mm -hmm. Then he would revolve and take his approach on, on making decisions and how that impacted certain things. He was like a master chess player. Mm. All right. And uh, in your talks with him and, you know, all the time you spent with him, what what sort of things did he envision for the future of uh, Navajo Nation? Um, there's so many things, but what really comes to the top is uh, just understanding and respecting the culture. Um speaking our language, retaining it, and um, then doing what is right for the people in the communities. And those three things come to mind to me. Um, The other is uh, he spent a lifetime doing his righteous uh, march to the Supreme Court in a tax case against businesses that resulted in uh, 
initial seed funding of $26 million, eventually $217 million to create the permanent trust fund. And uh, when they first did it, he was telling me how people just chastised them, saying, you just, you just need to give us per cap, just distribute it, let us spend it. But they, uh, they took a stand and said, you know, we got to create a permanent trust fund for future generations. And that's 30, over 35 years ago. Today, it's valued over $3.2 billion. And uh, the nation can use the interest income. And a few years ago, six years ago, that interest income, 95% of what they could use was, over, was around $150 million per year. Wow. Wow, that's um, that's uh, pretty incredible. Um, so uh, we're going to go to a break in just a bit, but I wanted to um, ask this uh, last question here. Uh, what's your favorite memory of him or favorite memory <laughs> together? <clears throat> There's quite a few of them, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> the, I didn't know the story about this old white truck he had, and uh, we were driving somewhere. And I told him, I'm looking for an old truck. I didn't know that he had one. And I said, that, uh, what, what, what kind of truck? Either a Ford or a Chevy, something from the 50s or the early. The... And he said, I've got one. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, but it's an international. So um, I didn't know that he had one. And just to find out later. The story about him just driving that around and campaigning in it and hauling his kids around and instead of having a a whole entourage of people with him. All right. We'll be back after this break. It's time again to update our Native Music Playlist. We have a Canadian country singer, a rocking honky-tonk band, and a lyrical troubadour, all adding their individual talents to contemporary Native listening. We'll hear from the artists and get a peek behind their creative process on the next Native America Calling. If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colorectal colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Ajaja. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're talking about the life and legacy of past Navajo Nation President Peterson Tza. He died last week. As the first president of the Navajo Nation, he reorganized the government and focused on economic development and securing sovereignty. As a leader, he pushed more citizens to get an education and was a mentor to many who are now leading the tribe today. If you'd like to say something about Peterson Zah, you're more than welcome to. Call 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Winter Rock, Arizona is Marley Shabala. She is a longtime journalist and she is Dene and Zuni. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Marley. Marley? 
All right, let's uh, go on to a another. Oh, uh, oh uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, we have you. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, okay. welcome to Native America, oh. Colleen. <laughs> All right, so um, l let's get some uh, historical context, um, you know, from you. You've been a longtime journalist, of course. You've been uh, following, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, all of the things that uh, Za has done in the community, even after he was, um, you know, wasn't a, a, an official, like, um, uh, president or, or member of the, um, you know, Navajo political side of things. Uh, but, um, you know, when uh, Peterson Zog was first elected, some call the period before that tumultuous. Um, can you can you tell us about what that period was like, uh, you know, in the in the 80s? And then um, when Peterson Zog uh, became a, a leader, the, a councilman? Um, well, uh, let, let me um, introduce myself. Yate Abena, Marley Shabala Yinshia, Tori Greeny and Sloan, Honest Eja, Astanet Bush's team. And before Mr. Zah was um, elected chairman, Ms., uh, Chairman Peter McDonald was in office. And during that time, the um, there was a, a push to begin coal strip mining on Black Mesa. And um, the result was the uh, forced relocation, eviction of thousands of Dineh families and hundreds of Hopi families. And it, it was very, it, it was, there was basically a civil war on the reservation because of that. Um, and if people look at some of the books that were written during that time period and read the news stories, they'll realize that the it, being evicted, and people now realize what that word means because of what happened nationally with um, evictions of homeowners. Well, out here it was the ancestral homelands. And the um, residents from the Black Mesa area actually came to the Navajo Council Chambers and threw rocks at the Council Chambers. And these were elders, the elders, along with um, their, um, their, their, their children, their, fa their grandchildren. And they, the police came and arrested them. So, uh, yes, when you talk about um, years of unrest, that, that's what um, we're talking about. And... Okay. I was um, I was going to school at UNM University of Mexico at that time, and I realized already that um, Chairman Peter McDonald did not respect freedom of the press, um, which is basically the people's right to know what their government is doing in their name. And so I didn't come back to the Navajo Nation to work as a journalist until Mr. Zaw was elected. And I knew Mr. Zaw since I graduated from high school, from Gallup High School in Gallup, Mexico. And I graduated in 1969. And, you know, the, the counselors, they never help indigenous students, you know, get through their, you know, Pell Grants, apply for college or universities. I was pretty much, you know, told um, to be a homemaker, you know. Mm -hmm. But I ended up in, in his project and, and very I haven't I haven't heard anyone talk about it, and it was called Southwest Indian Development, 
SID <laughs> and Southwest SWID, yeah. And um, he was the director of DNA Legal Services at that time, and he applied for a grant. And and it was invitations out to recent high school graduates and to um, college students that were entering college, uh, freshmen or sophomores. And his project had us go out on the reservation and look at how much trading posts were charging for basic um like bread, a loaf of bread, coffee, sugar, salt, you know, those, those basic foods. And um, we found out, of course, that, you know, the prices were really almost triple, four times what you would pay for a loaf of bread or coffee um, off the reservation. And, but he had, as, you know, as DNA, as when he worked for DNA, he would receive these concerns from communities. So this came from the community. And his response was to create Southwest Indian Development and have Diné young people go out onto their homeland and not only just go out and, you know, try to find out what's happening at a trading post, but also realize who's out there, you know, as young people. Um, and so that was enlightening. That was empowering as as a um, recent high school graduate. And, um, and so... Then he asked, you know, he says, you know, also he says there are concerns from people that because of the high price of food from these trading posts, when people receive their checks, like maybe Social Security or welfare or whatever it is, the trading posts knew when those checks came in because they were running the post office. So they would open up the checks and have them signed over. And so there was like this um kind of feudal lord relationship going on on the Navajo Nation. And he had us go out there and let people know, hey, look what's happening on our reservation. And that's a federal you know, post office. They shouldn't be opening mail. So it also educated people about their rights. And that that's why I came back. I And I always looked up to him is because he showed me what that meant, um, the people's rights. He showed me, you know, to go out there, not be afraid to ask those questions, you know, of uh, people who are supposedly in these uh, positions of authority. Mm-hmm. And and then from there, um, it was like an awakening. And so next thing you know, our next project was to go and um, investigate the intertribal Indian ceremonial, which, you know, was proclaiming itself as, you know, a tribute to indigenous nations. But yet they're making money. We found out that was they were making a huge amount of money, and none of that was going to the performers, the indigenous performers, or going to their lodging, meals, um, even scholarships. Nothing was returning. Their tribute to the indigenous people just was that. You know, it was just all talk, and and they were making money off of indigenous people. The only um, Indian they cared about was you know the Indian on on the nickel. And and so he he organized us and had us go and you know investigate intertribal Indian ceremonial and then we held a protest and um, and the communities supported us at that time because they were realizing that young people were going out into the community and they were making changes with the leadership of Peterson Zaw who was running DNA Legal Services and people knew him because. 
legal services was, you know, the free legal services for the people. And he put that together on the Navajo Nation. And through that, he he had contact with Hillary Clinton. And so when we did the process at the intertribal Indian ceremonial of young people, the people that were coming to attend the ceremonial, the visitors, when they found out what was happening, they they wouldn't buy tickets or they asked for, you know, a refund. Mm-hmm. And and so he made a huge impact. And as I was thinking about his impact on me, I thought to myself, geez, you know, how many times I get asked as a journalist um, since I've been here on the Navajo Nation for over 30 years um, and and people ask me, well, how did you get started in journalism? And I usually tell them, well, I was going to be a nursing student, but then, you know, I ended up creating this newspaper at Kiva Club because the Lobo wouldn't cover our stories. But then I realized, no, you know, I, I pushed it back and I thought it was him. It was him that started that. I know that as a child, I loved reading, which is part of it, but to have someone like him um a Dene, um who is already helping people mm-hmm. with legal services that were needed so much on the Navajo Nation at that time. And you have to look back in Indian country and look at our history of our interaction um, with the outside world. And it still happens today, you know, um more recently, New Mexico, the New Mexico governor, you know, looked at capping the um, loan, the, the companies out there, they were offering loans, but, you know, what, what at 50 percent, you know, interest. Mm-hmm. And our people didn't understand that. And a lot of them were getting their 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 trailers, their vehicles repossessed. And 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 now you look at how the history has shown that, you know, they were targeting indigenous people, you know, so that they could do that. They could come and get their homes. They could come and get their vehicles. And there stood Peterson Zahl with DNA Legal Services, you know, and even going over to the council and educating them about the rights of prisoners in the jails. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... He, he, um, people always say, you know, uh, oh, yes, he was a man of the people. Mm-hmm. Well, Peterson Zaw was a man of the sheep herders. <laughs> all right. Um, so, so when we talk about all of these achievements and all of the really great things that he's done, um, that have really changed the Navajo Nation, I'm sure there were, uh, some difficult parts of his presidency and his, his leadership. Uh, what do you think some of the most difficult parts, uh, of being a leader was for, uh, Mr. Zah? It, um... When he took office after um, Chairman Peter McDonald, people were were um, watching Peter McDonald come to a community. He came with an entourage. He was in a three-piece suit. He had security. I mean, not just one security. I mean, he had several security. And these were all Diné. And then he had his cabinet, and, um, and he... Um, he would have the dark SUVs, and and then here comes um, Chairman Peterson Zaw in his um, white international pickup truck, and no security, no entourage, no three-piece suit, and 
And he told us, and you always hear this, I know as journalists, we always hear this, you know, we have an open door policy, you know, but you walk in and there's the reception and you have to sign in and say why you're there. Then you have to wait and maybe you'll get seen, you know, um, based on the open door policy. But with Mr. Zaw, he actually reorganized the office of the president and vice president. So when you walked in and walked up to the receptionist area um, and you were signing in, all of a sudden you would hear him say, Yacht A. Marley, come on over, you know, and then look down the hallway. There he is, right at the end of the hallway with his desk, you know, facing whoever was going to be signing in at the receptionist with the receptionist. Mm -hmm. And he would hold regular press conferences, you know, allowing the press to come in and ask him questions. And he would answer our questions, give us documents. Um. Whereas with Mr. McDonald, when he came back into office, he changed all of that, and he actually had enough authority to direct the council delegates not to share any of the public documents like legislation or reports or anything with anyone, even if it was discussed, debated, taken action on in, you know, in, the, um, in an open meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so there was a very stark difference. Plus, when Mr. McDonald came back in again, he shut down the Navajo Times. Wow. So having Ms., having Peterson Zal come in and he really um, made those changes. But sometimes, you know, who knows what goes on if you have that kind of financial backing? I don't know. You know, that's what we all look at is. When, as journalists covering, you know, campaigns is, you know, how much financial backing are the candidates receiving and where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. And with Mr. Zaw, he he was an open book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Marley, before, um, you know, we, we move on to another guest here, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, as a, as a journalist, is, is there anything you want people to know about, uh, President Saw, about how he was this open book and was very, um, instrumental to, uh, you know, information getting out to the people via just, um, being open to, uh, journalists like yourself. Is there anything you'd like other uh, leaders to know, other tribal leaders to know about um, Peter Senza? Marley? Uh, oh, hello. And um, well, you know, as a journalist, um, in Indian country, there is a real lack, a real lack of, of the people's right to know what their government is doing in their names. And that was one thing about Mr. Zaw. And he was an educator, and he understood being an educator that you cannot educate, and that education actually, you know, education creates change. And it um, moves people forward. It moves the community forward. And so that was why he he kept an open-door policy. And I think that within Indian country, um, the um, elected leaders have, or elected officials have forgotten that. And, and there's a difference between leaders and politicians. And um, in the Diné way, um, Mr. Peterson Zob showed that. You know, he walked his talk. 
He he spoke the Nair language. He recognized the Nair way of life, our beliefs, um, ceremony. He was the one that, that created, um, went to Congress and said, our veterans have different medical needs. You know, we want you to start funding our ceremonies to um, heal our veterans. And we have a ceremony that we've done before, you know, before the visitors came. And and he talked about that. He educated Congress about that, and they funded that. Right. And, um, yeah, he was amazing. Visionary. He was a visionary. All right. Thank you so much, Marley. Uh, we're talking about the life and legacy of uh, past Navajo Nation President Peterson Zah today. If you want to join the conversation, there's still time. We're at 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back after this break. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce today. We're focusing on the late Peterson Zah. He was the first president of the Navajo Nation and a leader and advisor for the tribe since the 1980s. There's still time to join the celebration of his life today. Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Tempe, Arizona is Marcus Dinettdale. He is the program manager for construction in Indian country at Arizona State University. He is a citizen of the Navajo Nation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Marcus. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, good morning. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, um, you know, construction in Indian country, uh, Peterson Zah helped create that program there. Uh, why was construction and infrastructure a main priority for him as, as, a, as a leader for Navajo Nation? That's a good question. Um, he saw the he had the, enough knowledge and the leadership and the experience to understand that construction industry is vital to the growth of Indian country, right? And to build Indian country. So in other words, he had to develop a program, a mechanism, a tool for not only the industry, but also for leadership, tribal leaders, um, those who are wanting to build community uh, in their respective nations to have the knowledge, skills, and abilities, the innovative technology, and the best practices of the architectural engineering construction management world to be able to have that knowledge um, to build. Um, on our website, we posted an interview we did with Dr. Zaw uh, back in 2019, and it really came from out of the approval of the 1990 uh, Indian Gaming Act where tribes are starting to look at building large projects and starting to build, you know, their gaming facilities, um, breaking into the hospitality market for the industry. 
And being able to work with contractors and builders and design teams at larger scales that they have not really experienced before. Prior to that, the only sense of building and advisory really that Indian country experience was those grants that we received from the federal governments, right, to talk about building schools and hospitals and clinics and, you know, some resource centers their way, uh, according to their specifications. But what Indian Gaming did in the passing of it and for the industry and for Indian country was that we are now managing projects on our own. And so uh, a new field, a new area that we never really experienced before uh, as, as natives to where we get to design. We get to have a say in the design from, from a vision uh, to building that process and what that process looks like. So that led to a lot of disagreements because we just didn't have that kind of knowledge. We're in the new area that we hadn't really been in before. And so Dr. Zah had, a, had an idea to gather business leaders from the industry, to gather tribal leaders, uh, to gather knowledgeable construction, native construction project managers that have been in the field for decades um, and building for large general contractors get everyone in the room together and say, how can we, how can we mitigate the, the uh, not going to litigation with one another? And how can we mitigate the arguing and the fighting and the conflict here and start working together instead of working against each other? Because this is for the bigger picture, right? And I think what you've heard from the other folks that I talked about his life is he um, had always the bigger picture in mind. He had the, what do you call the 30,000 foot, scope, you know, of view, um, the Eagles, the Eagles view, if you want to say that. Yeah. So I think that um, he had, he knew that if we can learn to work together, um, industry and Indian country coming together, we can learn to work together beyond gaming, which is what we're talking about now. I mean, many tribes across the nation are talking about manufacturing and housing manufacturing and different projects that lead to other economic development uh, enterprises beyond gaming and gaming was never the end not just to get not just to have CIC just to build in the hospitality world but it was the knowledge behind it the underlying message that he wanted CIC to have is to make sure that Indian country is in tune with the best practices with the latest innovative technologies in construction and design and to be able to have a say at the table as to what does what does this tribe, what does this nation uh, want to see in their building? And I've always said this, and I and I've kind of harnessed what um, Dr. Zah has left left with us and our organization um, is the fact that you have to um, when you're having a seat at the table, um, have something to say, but also um, making sure that you are being heard. Um, not just saying words, but making sure you're being heard and making sure that you're uh, you're getting your point across, that you're you're concise, and you ask for what you need, and that's just what he was. He was a leader of of the Navajo Nation, but also a leader in Indian Country, meeting people's needs. And so I think that's what the underlying message for what he wanted to happen with construction in Indian Country, and uh, why why he got that program and get this program off the ground. 
Yeah, and at ASU, he was a pretty big uh, presence there for a very, very long time. Uh, what did he mean to the students and generations of students who, um, you know, went through NMSU or, or just found themselves in school in, uh, you know, that Phoenix area? Oh, he meant a lot, right? And so I think first and foremost, the, the one word that I would say um, that comes to mind is mentorship, and he was a mentor. Right. First and foremost, he wanted to ensure parents that are sending their children to study at Arizona State University that they were in good care and that he um, led programs and he was influential, not only with the ASU Indian Law Program, but also in other American Indian Student Support Services groups and organizations and centers that we are being trusted by families to take care of their loved ones to come study and train so that they can receive an education and take that knowledge back and they can work in their respective lands. And I think that the one thing that he wanted to make sure as he's traveling, um, I heard a story this morning in one of my staff meetings uh, with some other groups of when he used to tour with the uh, ASU, does a tribal nations tour where they take student, current student and they go visit the go visit the nations, right? And they, they they take ASU to the front doorsteps and to explain, you know, what our institution does. But not only just explain the degree programs and the opportunities and career for growth, but also talking about the amount of support that they will receive once they are here. And he was out there. He went on a tour with with the group on the tour bus, and and uh, he visited these high schools. But he was promising these parents, and he was promising families that they're going to be well taken care of, and they're going to be fine mm-hmm. uh, when they do attend ASU. And I think that um, when they got here, he was very mindful to, uh, as someone had said, a very open door policy as a president and uh, a chairman of Navajo Nation. He also had that same had the same open door policy with students mm-hmm. at ASU as special advisor to the President Grow and on American Indian initiatives. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcus, for uh, sharing your, um, you know, y- your story with us today about uh, Peterson Za today. Uh, let's go over to a caller. We have Glenaba in Taos, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Hi, Glenaba. Hi. Good morning, everybody, all my relatives. Um, I just wanted to say that as a fourth-generation um, Family member, a family of using uh, Native American church as our way of worship at Taos Pueblo. Uh, Peters and Zaw was always in our prayers because we knew of the important work that he did to make sure that we can ex- exercise our freedom of religion and be able to use our medicine freely without any kind of religious persecution. And uh, we have our stories in oral tradition of being persecuted not only by non-Natives, but some of our own people who were um, who didn't understand what we were doing, and he was an advocate, and he's always been an advocate. So I'd like to thank his family if they're listening, and I pray for his family um, to, for us to just move forward and to carry on the ideals and, and achieve the goals and, and cherish the values that he had for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, so joining us now from Arizona is Janie Parrish. She is the president and founder of Arizona Native Vote. She's Dina. Welcome to Native America Calling, Janie. Yes, eh? Happy to be here. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, how would you describe Zah as a mentor, as a friend? 
all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's been a very influential in, personally in my life since I was the age of, or for 22 years. He was always the first person I called for job advice, personal advice, um, you know, political strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was uh, influential. Um, I met him when I was a student at Arizona State University, and I didn't realize we had such a monumental figure at ASU, um, but that's where we began. And um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you first met him over at uh, ASU. Um, was he? How was he different from maybe what the public might have seen of him all these years? Well, he was very kind, <laughs> very funny, and very much um, a family man. I mean, his family is incredible. Um, his mother... She lived to over 100, and she and the family had just a tremendous impact on him and his knowledge. And his wife, Rosalind Zah, really a true partner at his side and, and strategizing and plotting and, and creating and building with him um, all these years. And so we're just thankful that the family let us share and mm-hmm. what he's able to build. Mm-hmm. What lessons uh, could other tribal leaders learn from him? So much. He's a connection to a lot of the old ways, um, 85 years. And I think it's a great mixture of not only traditional knowledge, but also very much contemporary modern. Because you've heard on the call today how much traditional knowledge he carried and championed. And I think that once leaders know what that is, they carry that forward in their planning and their vision and putting the people first. And you hear that amongst many great leaders of putting their community, their families, themselves, and, you know, first before themselves. And I think having that long-term vision and creating, creating not just and beyond yourself, that's what Mr. Zob was great at. He, um, as you mentioned, was involved in so many disciplines um, in creating monumental policies for not just Navajo, for across the nation. Um, you talk about non-Native leaders that have credited him because that were the first introduction or went to seek his advice. He created people that would continue the work. That was always, I think, a goal of mine was beyond himself because he could only do so much as one person. But if he was able to influence and train and help counsel and advise young people especially, but even his peers. And that's what he's been able to create at the Indian ASU Law Program, construction, every facet. I worked with him for eight years at ASU helping to build what it is now. I mean, there's incredible stories about even just how he came to be at ASU. Uh, Laddie Corey, they played football against each other at the Phoenix Indian School. And when he was done being president, he said, can you help us build at ASU? That was a great opportunity because he could see the the greater impact he could have, not only just with Indian country, but with deans that have probably never even thought about Indian country, with provosts, with the whole system. And after what he created at ASU, other universities started looking and saying, hey, we need that model here. But also in the grassroots, you know, I mean, just – being able to sit with people and make you feel 
like you're being heard on and on a very personal individual level he made every person feel very special and acknowledged and that what their talents and their skills were valid and that he needed their help yeah. i think that was probably a great testament for myself when you know he didn't say i'm going to give you a job or i'm going to help you he he said you know i need help at here at asu i need you and I know he did that for countless people in terms of, of 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 giving them the opportunity. And there's so much more, but mm-hmm. I know we're on limited time, so <laughs> I, I just encourage people to watch the the memorial service. That's another small snippet of where you'll hear from many more people. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're wrapping up today, I just want to ask you um, this last question here. How important was he to uh, mobilizing Native people to vote, to educating Native people about voting? Tremendous. Um, We're carrying on his work. We're his legacy. Um, That was the reason why, again, I'm always being brought back home because of him, (laughs) which is a good thing. When I was a student in my 20s, in my late 20s, 30s, I'd always you know, come back in some way through Mr. Zah. And two and a half years ago, he called and said, we need your help to mobilize and organize Navajo voters and others. We need to win elections. We need to come home. I left Emily's List uh, and another organization, and we started grassroots how he started, him and Roz, since the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when there were no, no Navajo Native people on the school board. He ran and he won from that beginning and even early on um he's championed voting rights with with the best the brightest um he's at that level with john lewis and martin luther king and more because he's done that for indian country all right Thank you so much, uh, Janie, for that. Well, that is all the time we have for our discussion today. For our discussion today, uh, we could talk, you know, much much longer about uh, the legacy of Peterson Zah. He's done so much for Navajo Nation and um, was very inspirational for other tribal leaders. I'd like to say thank you to our guests today. Uh, we had Marcus Dell, Marley Shabala, Janie Parrish, and Robert Joe. We'll be back again tomorrow with a new set of music for your Native playlist. I'm Andy Murphy from the Navajo Nation. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at americorps.gov vista today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.